year 2020. And the church is still acting like it's 1982. That's the year we were born. And 10 years into this gig, we are doing our best to help the church into the future. We are iPhone pastors for a typewriter church. And this is the Millennial Pastors Podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. My name is Eric Parker. And I'm Courtney Reedman Parker. Welcome to episode one, where we're 10 years into this gig. That's right. So when you had your 10th anniversary of ordination this summer, just a few weeks ago. Just a few weeks ago. And I had my 11th a couple months ago. One month ago. Two months ago. (laughs) Every month counts. Recently. Recently. Right. So 10 years into this gig, what, what, have you, what have you been doing for 10 years? So many things. So many things. Well, maybe it would make sense to introduce ourselves to our listeners and give them a little bit of background on who we are and where we have served up until now. That's a good idea. I guess I can go first. So I guess 11 years into this gig, I've served in uh, four different congregations and uh, a variety of different places. I started out in a small rural congregation just outside of my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Moved on to a large congregation in a smaller town. And then we came here to Manitoba, served a sort of medium-sized for Canadian church congregation in another small town. And lastly, I've moved to serving a congregation here in Winnipeg uh, called Sherwood Park Lutheran Church, which is sort of a, for Canada, a medium to large urban congregation or suburban congregation. That's a lot of calls in 11 years, I guess. Yeah, I think we've both benefited from having a lot of different congregational contexts to serve in and also in different synods. And so I served my first call in a suburb of Vancouver and then moved to Alberta where I hung out for a little bit while Eric and I were newlyweds. And then we moved here to. Winnipeg, and I took a call as an associate pastor at a large multi-staff congregation, and then from there went to do some interim ministry work for a few years, also worked on the synod staff, and for the past seven months, I have been serving as a solo pastor here in the city at Messiah Lutheran Church, and like Eric, a similar-sized congregation in an urban context. Right. So we also started seminary together 15, almost 15 years ago to, to the week next week, 15 years ago would have been when we first met. True story. (laughs) And then I graduated in 2009. And I graduated in 2010. I guess, so I guess if you're following along with the math, you could have figured that out already, but we've also served, uh, Various other forms of, I, I've served a, or started a shared ministry 
that was uh, six different congregations. And you've done some interim work. So we've had a pretty wide variety of experience in the church over the past decade. So we're 10 years into this gig of being pastors. And as the uh, name of the podcast suggests, we are millennial pastors. And I thought, you know, what does it mean to be a millennial pastor? Maybe there's some interesting millennial moments that we could share with people so they get the idea of what it's kind of like to be a millennial serving in a congregation made up mostly of, or a church mostly made up of baby boomers and older generations. Right. So I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is um, a memory that I have from a few years ago when I was at a women in ministry lunch when a fellow millennial colleague asked or mused to the group, you know, seminary prepared us for this new world of church in the 21st century, but has anyone prepared the church for us? No, they haven't. <laughs> That's the answer to that question. I mean, people <laughs> love the idea of a young pastor or a young pastor with a young family, but there are a lot of challenges on both ends to to understanding one another and the places we come to church leadership from and our understanding of what the church is. Exactly. You know, the church the church has been, I think, a place that's been pretty consistent for probably a good 50 years. At least consistent in how people experience it and all of a sudden probably around 2000, probably around 9-11, things started to change. Um, and Or the world started to change, but maybe the church didn't start to change, and that's where we have some of this tension and conflict. So one of my, one of my millennial moments was basically on my very first day on the job. Um, not even, even before I started my first congregation just outside of uh, my hometown of Edmonton, it was a rural congregation, literally right on the corner of a farm, and uh, and the ce- the cemetery, the church, the parsonage were all in the same six acre uh, plot of land. And I was invited out by some of the church leaders to come and sort of take a look around, get the lay of the land, see the church building, get a full tour, and the rest of the church facilities and property. And so we went, and I got to poke my nose in every corner of this uh, nearly 100-year-old church building. And I got to see the parsonage that was being uh, made ready for me to move into. And then we decided to go meet some of the oldest members of the congregation, the ones who were in the cemetery. And so we walked down uh, to the other side of the six-acre plot of land. And as we were walking, the members of the congregation, these leaders, started talking about uh, sort of their experience living in the area, living on farms in this rural community. And they started talking about how they remembered, you know, when they uh, when electricity first came to to the area, and how all of a sudden they could see all their neighbors' houses in the dark, the little yard lights that popped up, and they could. You know, it used to be pitch black when they look outside at night, and then they could, uh, then all of a sudden they could see the yard lights of their neighbors, and they knew that they weren't so alone. 
uh, they talked about remembering when TV was first available and people were able to watch TV. They talked to, told me stories about uh, taking horse and buggies to church and riding to church in the winter in sleighs, and their parents would warm rocks in the wood stoves to put on their feet. And here I was, this uh, kid from the city, and I was taking notes on, I think it wasn't actually an iPhone, it was my BlackBerry, but shortly it would be an iPhone, but I was taking notes about all this stuff, people taking horse and buggies and remembering uh, when electricity first came to their, their homes. And I was taking notes on a BlackBerry and all of this, and it just seemed so incongruous. I couldn't quite figure it all out. Uh, so that was sort of a millennial experience of of church. You got any more stories? Well, sure. I mean, I'm sure we could fill this whole first podcast just with stories of this this reality that we have been encountering for the last ten and eleven years. Um, but but I think that's that's the the first or the ground zero moment for you right and and any of us serving in church leadership who happen to be millennials or older gen xers will will likely um understand that that reality those moments of we're not in Kansas anymore an no. old-timey reference that everybody still still understands. What, is that from a is that from like a song or a book or something? Yeah, something like that. Google it. Well, and part of it is being being forever young. You know, so I was 26 when I started and I guess that's pretty young to start something. I think about what my my grandfathers were doing at age 26. One was also a pastor and serving congregations and starting congregations and getting mission congregations to refinance their mortgages so they could pay off their their loans to the national church. My other grandfather was the chair of a congregation that was building a building. And, uh, and yet, you know, I'm 37 now, 11 years later, and I still get treated like I'm young, like I'm a kid by some folks. And you know, I just started in this new call a year and a half ago. And it's not so much the members of the congregation, but I would say friends or, or people sort of loosely connected or other pastors in the area will ask me also, how long have you been serving here? And I'll say, oh, you know, three months, six months, however long it was. And they're like, oh, well, new, uh, new to the ministry, eh? What's it like being a pastor? Oh, well, actually, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years and this is my my fourth church, and they almost are disappointed that they don't get to impart this wisdom <laughs> to me, this new kid starting out. And some some of them I've even been serving longer than, like, oh, oh, I've only been a pastor for five years. <laughs> sure, but that leads into this idea that that being older or having more years of experience necessitates having more knowledge or experience in a specific area. I remember being at my first call interview and, and the real concern was whether or not at 26 years old I had ever experienced any personal grief or loss. 
And the call committee seemed almost surprised that I had, which to me seemed a little strange. Yeah, I mean, probably, probably they may be thinking back to their own experience being 26 and maybe not having experienced grief, or maybe thinking about their own kids and grandkids who are that age. And Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But I think it all goes back to this idea of people like the idea of having somebody young, but then the young person is in front of you and is, is outlining the way in which we understand the church, have experienced the church, are dreaming about the ways in which God is at work in the church. And it's suddenly very different from what they have experienced and from what they are maybe dreaming or understanding. And, and then it's this now what moment, I think, for a lot of people. Right. And having, having young leaders who might have their own ideas about the church because it's often kind of taboo as a younger person to have an idea about how we should do things if you haven't been around for three generations or for 30 years. Sure. I mean, people like the idea of we want to involve the youth in the church until you're actually involving the youth or young adults or somebody who hasn't been around for three generations into the leadership roles. And then it's sometimes, not always, but sometimes a much different story. Exactly. So being, being a millennial pastor is, uh, is a consistent experience in being um, uh, frequently sort of told that you're too young to be doing this and also the the entire hope and future of of the church <laughs> no pressure yeah no pressure but i think maybe the largest millennial moment is this unspoken reality of grief and really unshared grief. And this is something that I experienced almost from the moment I stepped in to my first call. Um, and we've talked about it before, and it's been talked about, written about on the blog, that for a lot of the folks we're serving, there is grief and gr grieving that accompanies this time in the life of congregations and the church as an institution. But it's a grief that you and I don't know and really can't relate to because by the time we were old enough to really understand church and to be participating and active in the life of the church outside of Sunday school, the time that they were missing, this, this thing they are grieving, the people that they are grieving, the place of church in community and our culture it had already passed. And so we have been raised and formed and informed in our faith and for leadership in the church after much of what our people are grieving. And I think that's really where the pinch point is. Because intellectually, 
we can get it. But it's just not something that I feel. I've not experienced church in the same way. In fact, the church that they are grieving, this thing that they're sad about, is the place that really has such an important and valuable place for me. It's rooted me. It's grounded me. So that is, I think, for me, what I continue to come back to and try to understand and form my own entryway into leadership is understanding this notion of of grief and then where there is new life sprouting up, shooting up from this sense that something is dying. Yeah, that was, you know, that was probably one of the things that was really uh, frustrated me or maybe confused me for the first, I don't know, probably three to five years of being a pastor was I just could not figure out what the deal was with, with the people I was serving. And I, and I love them so dearly, but there was this weird thing that they would do. It seemed, and it seemed to happen all the time. It's like people would show up to things and look for all the people that weren't there. And, uh, it's almost like they were looking for ghosts or seeing ghosts. Yeah. And looking at all the the empty spots. And I and I do sort of get that. You know, in 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 the call that I served the longest, we certainly had I certainly had a number of funerals. And after a while I could look out into the sanctuary on Sunday mornings and I could see the empty spots. I could see the places where people that I had known and served and loved and cared about were used to sit and used to be, and now they were just empty and gone. And they weren't being replaced necessarily by by other family members or or they were just empty. And and so I do get it that people would are coming to church after, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty years, and all they see is the empty spots. And so there is this, and it took me a while to figure that out, that there is this grief that they were carrying with them, this sense of loss, the sense of missing something, of being like a, an empty shell of what they once were. And at the same time, I, yeah, I, I didn't feel that way. I didn't think that way. I didn't see the church as a shell. I saw the people that were there. And the church looked sort of the way it had always looked for me. It was always mostly a gray-haired place. It was always full of people that were older than me, even as a kid. And all these people were the people who introduced me to Jesus, the people who brought me to faith. And so I didn't see it as an empty place. I wasn't grieving all the people who weren't there. This is just simply what the church was. And it took me a long time, three to five years, to really figure that out, that people were essentially grieving every time they came to church, and I wasn't sharing that grief, and it did lead to tensions, and it did lead to, lead to um, conflict sometimes with, with parishioners, with, with colleagues even. And it wasn't until I started to name it, you know, in, on the blog, in preaching, that all of a sudden that dynamic, once it was named, was a lot more, a lot easier to deal with, a lot easier to manage, to say like, hey, I understand you're missing 
You feel like you're missing all the people that used to be here. And it kind of makes sense when you think about how people talk. We need to get all the people back. We need to get especially the young people back. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, all my friends, most of them never went to church. So I don't know what you're getting them back to. And and the other piece to that that I realize is people are not actually talking about getting the young people back. They're talking about being young again, because the young people they're imagining are all, I guess what I would say, old now. They're imagining themselves being young again. Well, and what that, and and how they remember church being when they were young. So it's not just we want to be young again, but we we want to experience what this community of faith was like for us at that point in time. And that piece of things I can get. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't remember all that stuff. I don't remember the Luther League when there was like, I don't know, 500 people that would come to these events. I don't know. I don't I have no idea. I've seen pictures of these church conventions with like a stadium full of people. Young people. Young right? people. Ru- young Lutherans gathered. I mean, I went to a I went to the Lutheran student movement in in Edmonton at the University of Alberta that we would cram 50, 60, 70, 80 people into our house for the weekly meal. And it seemed insane, like that number of young people being involved with the church. And it was not celebrated. I I thought it was so weird. Like our youth group had, I know, six people, 10 on a good day. And so we had 80, like, university students all coming to have a meal and have a good time and do some something related to faith together. And it didn't seem like anybody else in the church really cared about this. And I think it's because they were lamenting the fact there wasn't 800. Like it wasn't these 80 people at a, 80 young people at a, at a young adults event was probably pretty normal, maybe even a small group for, for some churches and some groups. And I think about, you know, the large churches now that have 80, 80 year olds is actually not kind of a necessarily difficult group to get together as far as Lutheran churches go. You can find that many people that are that age to get together these days pretty easily. Well, um, not these days, but in general. Just get a just get a bus trip going somewhere, a Greyhound, and you can fill it right up. I mean, in that in the first church I served where we regularly get between thirty and uh, you know, sometimes sixty or seventy people to worship, they managed to get two greyhounds full of people to go to a passion play down in central Alberta in the Badlands. So <laughs> you get the right activity and they'll show up. But, uh, and I think that's what they imagine. That's, I mean, that was closer to what their memory of church was, you know, being full and packed to the rafters. And that's what they're grieving, right? When it's not full and packed, when it's, all the empty spots. That's what they see. They don't, people don't tend to see who's there when you're expecting all those empty spots to be filled. Yes. And I think it's also worth noting that for, for, for this group of people too, it's not as though millennials were the ones that stopped coming to church, right? It was our parents who stopped going to church and then we're not raising their children in the faith, one might say, or or we're at least not 
engaged in the life of a lot of our churches and faith communities. And so by the time we were in leadership positions, I don't think it's just that people are missing their friends. That's certainly part of it. But it's also their children and their grandchildren. And this this sense of where did I go wrong? Or questioning their own their own faithfulness about, you know, was there something I could have done differently for my four children, five children, six children, right? To, to be, um, to be, if for them to be coming to church. And I think that's another reality that we often don't address because it makes people uncomfortable. That that's a huge block for a lot of for a lot of people that I've served in the last ten years, right? Is is feeling like fail, faithful failures, or another way to like they've failed at being faithful because their kids and grandkids aren't at church or stopped coming or only come at Christmas or for baptisms or for whatever. I mean, I did a lot. I've done a lot of baptisms for people that haven't been to church since maybe their own baptism and they're doing it because grandma and grandpa want this is just what our family's always done and 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 it's weird it's strange and it have it's a it's a crazy opportunity for me to talk about Jesus with the people who don't usually talk about Jesus for you know get sort of their undivided attention for an hour but but it is strange and weird at the same time that this faith conversation is happening essentially for the first time with me when they're coming to a baptism and it's the first time they've really been forced to think about what it's going to look like when they come to church at least for one Sunday and so it yeah it is it is strange and it is almost always when i figure out who these families are and who who the the relative is that has cajoled them into getting uh this baptism done it all makes sense it all makes sense oh yeah okay i see what's going on here the millennial pastor podcast is made possible by the sponsorship of the mno synod what is the MNO Synod? It is the District of Lutheran Churches in Manitoba and Northwestern Ontario. And they have given us a generous grant from their uh, Acts of the MNO Committee, sponsoring experiments in ministry across the Synod. And they've given us funding to do this podcast. And so we're very grateful for the funding that they give. Uh, they've given us to start this project and to do this experiment in ministry. And you can check out the MNO Synod online at mnosynod.org. Or you can uh, search them on Facebook and social media. I think they have a Facebook page. They have an Instagram account and, uh, and a website and probably some other stuff too. So you can certainly check them out in all those places. So uh, thanks again to the MNO Synod and to the generous grant that allowed the Millennial Pastor podcasts to exist.
you had a moment right off the top, Eric, where you identified 9-11 as being a moment in time, both culturally and for the church. And I wanted to make sure that we came back to that this episode. Right. I mean, I think I think 9-11 is the defining date for millennials. Absolutely. Because it's basically the day, the moment in history that defines uh, whether you're a millennial or not. So if you were alive before that, but not an adult, so under the age of 18, before 9-11, that pretty much makes you a millennial. If you're born after 9-11, you're generation Y, Z, whatever. And, uh, and if you're, if you had some adult, uh, if you've been an adult before 9-11, uh, then you are either Generation X, Baby Boomer, Silent Generation, GI Generation. And if you're older than the GI Generation, you're just, uh, old. Anyways, 9-11 is, uh, important because sort of everything changed. I remember I was in my first week of university. So I'd been 18 for a few months. And I was supposed to go to my German lab, I think. And I woke up uh, probably later than it actually happened, but it wasn't too long after the plane hit the towers and it was all over the news. And I remember spending a few hours before class at one o'clock in the afternoon just glued to the news on TV about this attack that had happened. And after that, it just changed everything. We were talking about Muslim terrorists in church. I had university professors that basically changed their whole courses to talk about 9-11. I mean, I was a history major, so it was a pretty easy shift, I think, for a lot of them. But it just became the lens through which we understood our world. And in some ways, it still is. I mean, we certainly don't talk about it quite as much as we did for the first 10 years afterwards. But it really changed and it changed everything. And I think it is the moment that defines, right? That for millennials, your whole adulthood has been defined by the lens of 9 11. And then after that, the great financial crisis of 2008. And then after that, 2016, the year that Donald Trump got elected president. But we need, we don't need to talk about him very much. What a time to be alive and moving into adulthood. And I think it really it really changed. Uh, millennials millennials really became foreigners after that to the 20th century because we hadn't spent any of our adult life in the 20th century, and because the whole lens of how the world is understood changed in 2001. We didn't, we also weren't sort of, we didn't have any sort of um, lingering effects of, of the way that the 20th century was. People talk about the 90s being this awesome time, and I guess I kind of remember it as a teenager, but, but certainly not the way I remember everything after 9-11 as an adult and, and, you know, that perspective on the world. Sure. I mean, we have those conversations now about children living through COVID-19 and how they will be shaped and informed and how much different that will be 
than for those who who were born or who had early childhood before before COVID nineteen. Right. Yeah. So so after nine eleven, one of the things I remember in church is is uh, the pastor. We did interim pastor at my home congregation then, and uh, he was preaching. And actually, he didn't preach. Sunday after he just basically put a couple mics out in the sanctuary and we sort of had this open mic and I it was really instructive because I remember how scared people were and how fearful they were and I think that fear translated into other aspects of ministry and the church and I don't think it's ever really gone away right and it wasn't I mean at first it was a fear about terrorism and different religions but that 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 fearfulness, it's tied to that grief as well that we talked about earlier, that people are are grieving the church and they're also very afraid of the future for the church because they know it's not going to go back. They're not going to fill all those empty spots. And so there's this fear that's been around for, I guess, a good 20 years now about where the church is going to go, what's going to happen to it, if it's going to survive. And it's really become pronounced, I would say, over the last 10 years, and maybe even the last five, is there's a lot of fear about, is our church going to be in here in five or 10 more years? I used to ask, in all my call processes, I would ask call committees, you know, what is your vision for the church in five to 10 years? And, and 10 years ago, uh, congregations would say, well, you know, we want to have more people here. We want to be more vibrant. We want to have an active ministry. We want to be able to pay for the things we want to do. And now, the last few call processes that I've been a part of in the last few years, people are saying, we want to be open in five years. We don't want to be closed. And and I think there's this fearfulness. I mean, it's certainly around in in many parts of society it's all over the place but there is this fear about the future of the church and again it's a fear that i don't necessarily share or have because i don't really see the church changing that much it hasn't changed dramatically over the past 10 years i would say that for the most part it stayed fairly fairly consistent sure people are getting older but there are, you know, the slow trickle of young people and young families staying committed. And it's not necessarily shrinking hugely, most congregations and the church as a whole. Yeah, there's some, but it's been fairly consistent. And I would even say it's been fairly consistent for the past 20 years. For sure, there's congregations that have closed. Sure, there's sure some churches are looking smaller. But I would say overall, it's been fairly consistent because there are congregations that have started. There's congregations that have grown a little bit and changed and adapted their ministries for their context and for their communities. And so we're actually in a fairly stable place, even as churches are struggling sometimes with with finances and, and what they perceive as shrinking memberships. I think has to do more with finally coming face-to-face with the fact that they have to adjust to this new reality. They can't just wait for the past to come back. They have to live in this new world, in this new reality. And so, and, and actually, it's easier, to, it's easier to imagine just closing than it is adapting to the new reality. 
Absolutely. Which brings us back to this question that I raised at, at the beginning of the episode. You know, seminary prepared us for this new world of church in the 21st century, but who is preparing the church for us? I guess we are. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're definitely... We're going to have to make the church ready for us. We're going to have to make the church ready for, for the next generations, too. You know, we were, we were talking about our colleagues, and we've, we've been, on, um, been on a few Zoom ministerial meetings, and hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn about colleagues, but one of the things I noticed in this uh, this time this time this pandemic time, but I'm sure it goes back further than that. People are struggling with how to how to continue doing this ministry in this 21st century world. And and I started talking to you about the change in hard skills versus soft skills. So hard skills are like sort of the technical ability to use tools and like computers, email, um, all that stuff is hard skills versus soft skills, the more relational skills. And I think for a long time, for the last half of the 20th century, the soft skills were the dominant skills because the hard skills didn't really change. You could handwrite your sermon in 2020, or sorry, 1950, and there's still people handwriting their sermons in 1999, in 2000 even 2005, right? You could get away with that. And there were still people that didn't have cell phones in the year 2000. There were still people who didn't know how to type, who weren't using the internet. Churches didn't need to be on the internet. And so a lot of the skills, right? You needed to know how to probably drive a car, probably how to write, probably how to read, uh, where to find your hymnal, where to find your concordance all that kind of stuff. Those are the hard skills you needed and they really stayed the same. And so the soft skills, building relationships, staying connected to people, organizing people. One of the interesting things about visitation that occurred to me for the first time after doing this for 11 years was why visitation is so emphasized is it was the only way that you would actually connect with people. Because, you know, if you, I think about my first, uh, congregation out on the farm something you could phone a farmer they're they're out of the house they're not sitting inside waiting for a phone call so the only way you could go and have a connection and relationship was to actually go to their go to their farm go to their where they lived have a visit and i'm sure it was the same for urban people right they weren't they were out busy doing stuff there were no answering machines for a good part of those 50 years so visitation became the mechanism for, for having relationships with people, organizing people, staying connected to people. And then it got baked into the way that, cult, that churches related to each other. It became the culture of the church to have the pastor out visiting. That all of a sudden, instead of being, being everywhere, you know, once we had the internet, once we had cell phones, once we had emails, pastors could be available anytime in ways that they weren't before because i've heard heard of pre predecessors from you know the 90s who you could never find them in the office because they were always 
visiting, but then how would you ever phone them? How would you ever get a message to them? I guess you left it with the secretary. <laughs> but it's uh, not about being available, but being accessible. Accessible. There's right. more accessibility now than there was before, but people expect availability. They expect availability, but are also people are less available themselves, right? Absolutely, sure. They would be even if they are home, they probably most people don't want you to just drop in and say, "Hey, can I come over for supper?" You know, on the spot. Um, so people themselves are less available, but are also more accessible. You can phone, text, email. You can social media. I get requests for baptism on Facebook Messenger. I mean. Like, that's something that somebody pastoring in 1998 couldn't even imagine. Right. And also it, it recognizes the way in which we, we communicate and also the way in which relationships have really shifted that you can be connected on different timelines. So I can send you a text message or an email or I can post something online. And you don't need to respond to it right away to know that I am praying for you or I'm, I'm informing you about an upcoming event or that there's a worship service that has been posted, that there, that there is a different accessibility also for people that I think for many is helpful. And the hard skills, right? These new hard skills are changing the soft skills that chasing down your parishioners is not a skill that you need as much anymore when you can send a text or an email or a Facebook messenger, right? You don't need to know when so-and-so is at home and when they're working or at the grocery store, you don't need to sort of arrange to bump in them, bump into them out of the town. So you can have that pastoral conversation. You can have it over a text message that, you know, you're responding once an hour, once a day. It's a bunch of short texts over a long period rather than one intense, you know, afternoon coffee. And so it's changing the way the hard skills work. And it's hard because those hard skills are changing our soft skills. And so changing the way that we do ministry, the way that we function as pastors. And yet, and yet the church hasn't really got that memo yet. <laughs> And, and actually, you can have inside your congregation people who expect all the range of, like, 1950s communication. They want you to place a newsletter in the mailbox at the back, back of the church. And then they also want to be able to click a link on your Facebook page to download that same information. Because we have now more than ever so many more generations that are part of a church. Churches can have up to five generations. Whereas, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you maybe had three. And so we have five generations of people in church who are all expecting to access church and access pastors and access ministry in different ways and understand what, it's to, what it means to be a community in a different way. And so it just adds to that confusion. We're in a transitional place as a church where we're shifting from one reality to the next and we're sort of in between right now and maybe by the middle of the 21st century we'll finally get into the 21st century fully 
Maybe yes, maybe no. Time will tell. <laughs> So that's sort of a long meandering conversation about what it means to be a millennial pastor. Um, so 10 years in, as a pastor with 10 years of experience, is there any sort of insights that you would pass on to the church, to colleagues? I think to continue to look forward and to always be looking for the ways that God is at work in new and unexpected and surprising ways, and to continue to to point to point back to our biblical narrative as a way of helping people to move through our grief and through some of those growing pains to be able to recognize that this isn't this isn't really new. It's new for us, but it's not new for God. And if God has been able to create something new for thousands of years, certainly God can create something new in and through us. Right. God is showing us a new future. And just like God has taken God's people so many times before into new futures, I just preached about uh, the Israelites going into the Exodus today, or at least the burning bush telling Moses that he's going to take the Israelites out of slavery into Egypt, that sort of we're similarly getting out of slavery too, slavery to, to a 50-year golden age of being church, of, of there, this is the only way that we could successfully be church. And it's going to be a wilderness experience for a while. It's going to be new and different. We're not going to know the way and we're going to wander. And it's going to be, sometimes we're going to, we're a lot of the time we're going to long to go back and say, at least we had, at least we had food back then. At least there was, even if we were under the thumb of the Egyptian slave masters, at least we got to eat some food. <laughs> but God will give us, give us the manna that we need. God will give us what we need to make it through the wilderness. And the other thing that I was thinking about being a millennial pastor with 10 years of experience is uh, is I, I think I'm going to be the young new pastor probably till I'm well into my 50s in this, in this church. But that's okay. I guess I'm okay with that. But it doesn't mean I'm going to act like I'm new and don't, don't know anything. That, that I'm going to just just say, yeah, you can think I'm new, but I've been here a while. I've been long here long enough that, that uh, I'm going to push you to do some things differently and do some things in new ways, because I think that's where God is calling us to, to, to be church and do church in different ways and, and recognize that it starts with maybe some of the hard skills but it also is the soft skills that the way we organize our community, the way that we understand community is going to be different. Particularly the stuff that is, the stuff that's central, right? We gather around word and sacrament. Those are, that's going to stay the same. That's, that was there long before 1950. Certainly going to be here after 2050. But the other stuff, the other cultural ways that we organize ourselves as communities, that's going to change that. If you know if people stop making leave it to beaver jokes by the year twenty thirty, maybe that will be a real big success. But I'm sure they'll still be around. 
hopefully this uh, conversation about being millennial pastors has been as uh, fun for you as it was for us. And uh, next week, or next time, we're going to be talking about pandemic ministry. Because it is the year 2020, or the decade 2020. And so we have a lot to talk about in that regard, and the ways it's even this year alone has changed ministry dramatically in the way we do it. The Millennial Pastors podcast is brought to you by the MNO Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. You can find the MNO Synod at mnosynod.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Courtney, if people want to find you online, where can they find you? Courtney Reedman Parker on Facebook, C. Reedman Parker on Instagram, and at Reedman Parker on Twitter. And you can find me uh, at the Millennial Pastor Facebook page. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Parker Eric. And you can find my blog at millennialpastor.ca. Thanks for joining us for episode one. And this has been a couple of iPhone pastors for a typewriter church. We'll see you on the other side. Bye for now.